Welcome to Rio Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our seventh episode, Congressional Correspondent James Arkin talks with Representative Mark Meadows, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. Then, Rio Clear Policy Editor Tony Mills talks with Jonathan Rausch of The Atlantic. First up, James talks with Representative Meadows, a Republican from North Carolina. I'm Real Clear Politics uh, Congressional Reporter James Arkin, sitting down in the office of Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina, Chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. Congressman, thanks so much for uh, sitting down with me today. It's great to be back with you. You cover the Hill like no one else, and so it's always good to uh, get to answer a few questions. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, so we're sitting down on a, a very interesting week up here on Capitol Hill. Obviously, Republicans uh, have released the um, what's supposed to be the uh, replacement, the repeal and replacement for the right. Affordable Care Act on Monday. Uh, you and some of your uh, colleagues in the Freedom Caucus have a lot of concerns about this legislation. Um, I, I know we've covered this throughout the week, but I was, I was hoping that you could just give me a, a brief breakdown of what your concerns are about this bill and, and what you would like to see changed in the approach for repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. You know, it's, it's real easy to criticize any plan, and so I don't want to be critical of our leadership in their effort to try to solve a very complex issue. And so as we see the, the Affordable Care Act and the undoing of that, the repealing and the replacement, uh, we need to do just that. The, the problem is, is we're really not repealing all of Obamacare and we're really not replacing uh, components so with, with any distinctions. So if the average American looks at this, they're going to say, well, all you did was shift subsidies to a tax credit and a check that goes to the insurance company. So right now, we send a subsidy to insurance companies. And, and instead of that, we're going to send a tax check to an insurance company. Uh, the difference is, is right now they're means tested based on income. Uh, we're going to change that and just say, well, if you're 30, you get a flat rate, or 40 or 50, you get rates uh, according to your age, but not according to your income. And we cap it. Now, when, when we look at that, uh, the cap on there, starts to pull back on that entitlement. For a Republican, this looks like it's a new entitlement program and has the potential of being the largest entitlement program that a Republican uh, president would ever sign into law. Uh, the last one was Medicaid Part, uh, Medicare Part D, and uh, obviously this could dwarf that in its size depending on how many people take the tax credit. And so uh, I think it has a chilling effect in terms of employer-based health care. Uh, the one thing that's working for 176 million people, now all of a sudden, if they're given a choice where a family can get a check from the federal government for $14,000 uh, and they're providing health care coverage that costs that, you know, I think they may end up shifting them to the the individual market and allow the taxpayer to write them a check instead of just taking the deduction at the federal level. Now, some would say that that offsets, uh, and, and indeed it might. Uh, however, the, the other problem that I have, which is really the fundamental problem, does it lower insurance premiums? That's what we're going to be judged on. And my analysis uh, would suggest that the only reduction you might get 
is one, uh, a minor one uh, in year after year, and by minor, one, maybe 2% uh, of lower growth, not going backwards, but um, not really reducing insurance premiums much, uh, if at all. So that's a, a really, you know, a breakdown of all of the concerns that you have, and particularly hearing you describe it as a new entitlement program right. makes it seem like there's, there's really no path to yes on this particular piece of legislation. So do you think that there's a way to change what this bill does within the bill to to get the Freedom Caucus and yourself on board? Or does, you know, Republican leadership and the committees, do they need to start with an entirely new structure to this legislation, completely start the process over? Well, I, I can tell you that what we're working on is trying to take their structure and make it work for uh, hardworking Americans. Uh, and, and so I'm assuming that these are, this is the, the cards we've been dealt. This is the framework that the leadership wants to go with. So I'm looking at all kinds of ways that we can take that framework. That being said, uh, you know, there's some real serious concerns uh, when, when you get to it. For, for example, it really doesn't allow insurance companies to provide cheaper insurance. I can't buy a catastrophic plan because of my age. You might be able to because you're young enough, but because of my age, I can't buy a catastrophic plan with a deductible at 50,000. And so um, where I might use a health savings account in conjunction with a very high deductible catastrophic plan, because Obamacare mandates stay in place, and what they have to offer, insurance companies have to offer, um, that makes it very, very difficult. Uh, and so then this whole debate really comes down to Obamacare by just another name or, or similar to that. And then the debate is really over the Medicaid expansion part. I believe the Medicaid expansion part really is the easiest part to solve. You get a few conservatives, a few moderates in the room uh, in both the upper and lower chamber. You figure out what works for both uh, groups. My, my state didn't expand, so should I penalize my state who didn't expand? I got a call from the governor of Mississippi yesterday, livid, because he didn't expand. And he says, now what you're going to do is reward the John Kasichs of the world. Uh, and penalize the ones who took the political uh, courage to not expand in their state, and uh, and he has a real problem with that. Do you think that if you did get conservatives and moderates in a room to talk about the Medicaid expansion, that there's that there's any sort of middle ground? Because I know that you know conservatives yeah. like uh, members of the Freedom Caucus have have said that they consider this plan and the fact that the expansion would stay around until 2020 to be unacceptable. But the reason that happened is because a lot of Republican senators in those states that expanded were really concerned that if it got scrapped earlier, a lot of people in their states would lose insurance. Seems to me like it's very difficult to find a middle ground between those two positions. You know, I, I can tell you that I've had a number of discussions with senators uh, that have come from states where they've expanded uh, Medicaid. And I can tell you, we've, I've got a meeting with one of them uh, either later today or tomorrow. I've got another meeting with another one uh, on the Senate side next week uh, on this very topic because I think that we can find the sweet spot on that. I've been very encouraged by that. Um, you know, I, I think we're not you know, politically 
blind to the fact that they have a, a different component uh, to have to deal with than perhaps I do in my state. Uh, that being said, I mean, to suggest that leadership came up and crafted this bill based on input from senators uh, is fascinating because I, I'm not aware that there's been a, a, a lot of meaningful dialogue between the senators and our leadership on the House side in terms of what comes out. Now, I don't deny your hypothesis that I think that they're thinking, well, this becomes a way. Uh, but I don't know that that's based on a lot of conversations with senators. It may be you're a reporter. You get the, you well, get the did, inside uh, scoop. Chairman Brady and Chairman Walden did go and, and sit down last week with re Republican senators and walk them step by step. Yeah, but that plan. was a presentation. It wasn't asking for their input. And I think what they said is, here's what we're wanting to do. You know, it was kind of rolling out a pre-rollout of the rollout that we saw 36 hours ago. Do you feel like throughout the process, both going back to last year when the better way was, was crafted and, and from then all the way up until this week when the final legislation was crafted, uh, you know, uh, the members on the committees and, and in leadership have said, you know, this was open to any Republican member of Congress. They, they could have come, they could have participated in the crafting of this legislation. And I sense a little bit of frustration that once the legislation comes out, there's such opposition to it given the, the process as they've dictated. Do you feel like throughout that process your input and your concerns were fully heard through the development of, of this bill? Well, there, there's two different questions in that question that you just asked. In terms of the Better Way agenda, was that an open process where people talked about the goals, what we would like to see, and, and getting input without a doubt? Uh, to suggest otherwise would not be honest in, in the analysis of what went on in terms of the Better Way agenda. But it's a far cry from a few principles uh, in a Better Way agenda and legislative text. Now, to suggest that members, rank and file members, even on the committees of jurisdiction, had real input in terms of the legislative text that came out, most members, myself included, read about what was in it from a leaked draft to a publication, you know, and so, uh, you know, have I seen, uh, have I talked about some of the principles? Yeah. Have I talked about some of the concerns in an open way with the speaker and leadership? Yes. Uh, and so there's been a number of listening se uh, sessions. Uh, the, the problem is, is you, you have these listening sessions and, um, to be surprised that there's pushback on this bill, uh, they're, they're not surprised by that. I mean, it's been articulated for some time of major concerns that are there. Um, and, and so I, I wanna applaud them for, for the reaching out, but there's a big difference between the Better Way agenda and bill text that we're reporting out of committees 36 hours later after it's been introduced. Mm -hmm. So now that we do have the bill text that was right. released this week, and obviously your concerns are well noted, and I know that the Freedom Caucus has endorsed uh, another plan that right. was crafted by Senator Paul and, and um, Congressman Sanford. Right. Um, but uh, leadership uh, seems to be making the argument that when once this plan goes through the committee process and is amended and goes to, to the floor and is amended, 
it's either a vote for this plan or a vote for the status quo of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I know that in yeah, conference that, this that, morning. That, that's a false choice, though. I mean, that may be what they're saying, but we can amend it dozens of times here. We can come up with a totally different plan. We can have Avik Roy has a, a plan that actually probably wouldn't get the president's support because it deals with uh, Medicare and uh, pays for it over time by rolling back some of the time, you know, the, the qualifications for Medicare. But there are several plans that are out there. So to suggest that this is the only plan uh, and this is a choice, as the whip would say, between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump uh, is, is one is putting Donald Trump in a very bad place uh, because uh, this, this particular plan, and, and they're using that as a selling pl uh, point, but I, I can tell you that I, they're the last person that wants to be in, in a fight with President Trump is me. Most of these people that are out there doing that, they didn't campaign with him. I did. You know, and it, I find it interesting, you know, that the very people that had the biggest problem with this president are now supposedly going to point to the Freedom Caucus, which most of us, uh, Jim Jordan and I specifically, um, campaigned with the president in our home states of Ohio and North Carolina. And, uh, you know, when other members couldn't be found, now all of a sudden there's a choice between Nancy Pelosi uh, and Donald Trump. I don't get it. I, I understand the argument, and it's, it may be persuasive, but it's not persuasive with me. So you say that yourself and, and Congressman Jordan, you know, campaigned with Trump, you said the Freedom Caucus right. was there. Do you think right. that that gives him, uh, is, there, is there a bridge there? What kind of relationship is there now that he's in the White House and you well, are Well, I mean, in he's Congress? the President of the United States, and so, I mean, it's a different relationship uh, uh, than perhaps when he was campaigning. Uh, I, that being said, um, even now, with a lot of the, the stories that, that come out, uh, that get reported, um, there are those who want to jump on the bandwagon and those who um, remain, you know, supportive of the president. And, um, and you don't normally find um, a number of members making a choice between supporting the president or supporting, you know, their Democrat colleague. And I, I, I think that's a false choice. I mean, we're going to see more of that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm expecting that. But uh, uh, I, I'm committed. I told the president personally that I am willing to w negotiate as much as I possibly can uh, to make sure that this is a bill that not only uh, does what he campaigned on, but does what I campaigned on. And those are not mutually exclusive agendas. So you say you told the president personally, um, and we know we've we've heard sort of infamously that he's kind of very open, that he'll answer his cell phone when people call. What's you know, I don't have a cell phone. You, you don't have a cell phone number. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, well, I've got an old cell phone number. <laughs> I'm, I've never tried it since he's been the president. <laughs> how, how often have you talked to the president since he's been know, office? You uh, know, conversations uh, been like he he is. Let me just say this about the president. If people knew how much he really cared, regardless of party and the way that he reaches out to people, uh, that's, the, that's the headline of the day, you know, James, it, it really is. I mean, he called to check on me, uh, didn't ask me for anything, just called to check on me uh, several weeks ago. And, you know, he's in the middle of having to do all kinds of stuff. For that, 
you know, it was a memorable moment for me just because he was willing just to pick up the phone, you know, the most important person in the, in, on the globe calls to just check on me and, uh, and, 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 and had no ask. Uh, so that's the kind of genuine guy. And I hear story after story after story of him doing that. And that doesn't get reported. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, most of my conversations in the last couple of weeks have been with other administration officials and, uh, you know, the number crunchers or, uh, you know, Director Mulvaney or Paul Teller or Mark Short uh, or the like. So stepping back for a second, um, while we have a, a couple of minutes left, I want to talk a little bit more about your role, uh, you know, becoming the, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, obviously, in the early months and, and the first two years of, of the Freedom Caucus, uh, with President Obama in office, uh, you know, most of what was gaining attention were the the, part, the fights within the Republican Party. Uh, you know, most notably when when you put the uh, the motion out that ultimately led to Speaker Boehner leaving office. Yeah. Now that there's a Republican in the White House, what's your vision for the Freedom Caucus? What do you see as your role within Congress and within the Republican Party in, in terms of governing under President Trump? You know, I don't know that it changes a whole lot other than it changes in the expectation of what we'll be able to get signed into law. We, the Freedom Caucus has been a voice for millions of Americans who have believed that Washington, D.C. has forgotten them. And, and let me tell you, my phones are lighting up today. I get texts and emails from all over. Based on this bill that just got rolled out, they think that Washington, D.C. has forgotten them. Uh, they don't see this as Donald Trump's plans. They see it as Speaker Ryan's plan, and they can't believe. In fact, I got a text this morning from South Carolina uh, that said, there is no way if the, the president really reads this bill that he would support it. Now, that being said, that just shows an expectation. Uh, the president may very well support it. I've seen some of the, you know, the comments that would indicate uh, at least the willingness to use this as the foundation. Not necessarily the final bill, but if we got it amended and made it right, uh, it becomes uh, the foundation. And so uh, as, as I see this, this is uh, um, uh, a defining time for the president because um, he's going to get blamed for whatever doesn't work. And uh, I don't know that he gets credit for it if it does work. And, and so I'm trying to make sure that he doesn't get blamed for uh, a bill that got worked on in secret that has been told, oh, well, we've had a bill for six months. Well, if we've had it for six months, why did we just get the text, you know, 36 hours ago? Um, but that being said, is, is to make sure that we make that bill as good as it possibly can be. I've committed to the president that I'm willing to negotiate and uh, I'm willing to invest as many hours as I possibly can to get it right. Um, and, and yet uh, the grassroots that are out there, uh, they, don't, they don't care for this. They just see it as more of the same. Why repeal if we're going to replace it with this? I mean, that's the question. But so in, in terms of the, the role generally of the Freedom Caucus, yeah. I think a lot of outside observers would look at what's happening this week on Capitol Hill with Republicans disagreeing over health care policy and say, 
here's more fighting within the Republican Party about policy, even though they have the White House now, and here's the Freedom Caucus once again at, at the center of those disagreements. Yeah. How do you become a, a responsible governing party when things like funding the government, raising the debt ceiling come up, if this is oh, the I, way the legislative I, I think, fight starts? I think those are the easier things. I think that right now you're seeing the role of the Freedom Caucus is to make sure that this particular piece of legislation represents millions of Americans. And so as we, as we see that, uh, this, is, this is what we are designed for. We had an unbelievable debate last night for hours, uh, but we, we were debating on policy and how to make it work. And so this is not being against our speaker or against our president. This is saying, how do we take what most Americans, those manufacturing workers, hard workers that pay taxes, and protect them from Washington, D.C.? And I, so I don't see it, uh, you know, anytime you're going to have a disagreement, they're going to say it's a fight. Uh, you know, any place else, they call it a debate. Uh, for us, we think that it's important that we continue to advocate on behalf. So I see it changes. It's more policy focused. Uh, you know, this is not about, you know, who's going to end up being the speaker the next time. You know, Speaker Ryan is the speaker today. He, you know, probably will be the speaker, you know, f for as long as he wants to be in Congress. Uh, this has nothing to do with leadership roles as much as it does policy roles. And so on that policy, I mean, it's a, it's a very aggressive agenda when you talk about what we're talking about currently, health care, and then you move into tax reform. Right. The president wants infrastructure, and then you, you know, there, are, there are plenty of other things um, you know, on the agenda. Um, but it seems like the first two months uh, of the presidency, the first six weeks, it's been fighting over health care, and it's been uh, questions about you know, executive orders, um, a lot of what some Republicans have called distractions in terms of questions. Of yeah, I haven't called them that. I, I've, hey, listen, any time that you're going to have do anything, you're going to get, you know, there's, there's the conflict that's going to rise. Any time that you accomplish anything, I was in business, and so whenever you do that, there is going to be some kind of elevation of, of tension. That being said, uh, you know, it, I think it gets a little easier going forward. Uh, Obamacare repeal and replacement is much harder than tax reform, although tax reform is not easy. But then once you get beyond that, infrastructure becomes much easier. Uh, I think uh, DOD approps and, you know, uh, and being able to fund our military and our veterans becomes easier. So you know, I think the president has tackled the toughest two early on, as he should, but it gets easier going forward. So one last question for you, because yeah. I know you have a busy yeah. schedule this yeah. week. Uh, the Speaker and uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell have laid out a very uh, aggressive timeline for this Affordable Care Act reform right. in place. They want it done before Congress leaves for the EC recess yeah. in April. Yeah. When Congress departs for that recess, will a repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act be on President Trump's desk? You know, I certainly hope so. I'm willing to work this weekend. Uh, uh, and around the clock uh, on behalf of the American people to get it done. I think we've got to make some real decisions very quickly as soon as it's reported out of, uh, out of committee. Uh, but, you know, we've created this own, we're on our own crisis. Why didn't we have a bill in February? Why didn't we have a bill in January? I mean, if we wanted it on his desk before Easter, uh, you know, what took us so long to get to this point? And so a manufactured crisis uh, and a manufactured deadline um, 
is is something that we've we've created and so we we're good at doing that in washington dc uh, but the reason why he wants it at that point is because we can't start tax reform until we get to the rest and because you you got to finish this one in order to do it you know if, if it gets to be a real problem let's throw tax reform on this reconciliation bill and we'll save the affordable care act for the uh, for the following one and that now that would turn it upside down in a heartbeat all right well we'll have to leave it there congressman mark meadows chairman of the house freedom caucus thanks so much for talking with it's us been today. great to be with you james thanks so much Finally, Real Clear Policy Editor Tony Mills talks with Jonathan Rausch about the state of American politics. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy, and with me today to discuss the fate of political institutions in the era of Trump is Jonathan Rausch, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and contributing editor at The Atlantic. Jonathan is the author of numerous books and essays spanning a wide range of topics, from public policy in the nature of American democracy, to gay marriage, in the nature of the scientific enterprise in liberal society. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here, Tony, thanks. You wrote an essay last summer for The Atlantic titled, How American Politics Became Insane. And if I may, it seems to me that part of the reason that essay was as popular as it was, that it, it resonated so much, was that it, it very perceptively diagnosed the dysfunction that, that many, many Americans were sensing in the political system leading up to the election. But I also think it was partly because it made the very provocative claim that the establishment was not the cause of that dysfunction, um, but rather the country's abandonment of the establishment, as you put it, that is the cause. Could you explain that thesis a little more for listeners who haven't read the, uh, the essay and also the context in which you wrote it? essay that was written in spring of last year when Trump was in the race, but was one of a number of candidates. Um, and the climate at the time was unbelievably chaotic. What was about to happen when I started writing the essay was unprecedented in American politics, which was of the four final presidential candidates in the primary, not counting John Kasich, who never won a state except Ohio. Of the, of the four big ones, three were insurgents running against their own parties. Um, that was Sanders, Cruz, and Trump. These were people who were complete outsiders. Um, this is brand new in American politics. There's no precedent for people running against the parties as outsiders whose nominations they sought. And I looked at this and said, this shows incredibly weak institutions. The parties are now so weak that they can't even defend their boundaries or really have much influence over their own nominees. So you've got all these outsiders coming along, people with very shallow roots, if any, in the party, people who may or may not be able to govern if elected. Some of these people are, I argue, political sociopaths meaning not that they're diagnosably medically ill, but that they don't care what other politicians think about them and don't need to care. They're completely unplugged from the rest of the political world. Uh, this is new. And this represents the breakdown of a political establishment, which is very important because it keeps a sense of order in politics. It makes some choices and decisions, and then it governs 
that's extremely important. We've dismantled it, and the result is chaos. So the theory of that article is that Donald Trump did not cause political chaos. Political chaos caused Donald Trump, and there's more coming along after him. Hmm. Is there anything about that thesis that you would update in light of the outcome of November or perhaps in light of the way the Trump administration and or Congress have governed or failed to govern since Inauguration Day? I might tweak the edges a bit, uh, but not really. No, it's still striking how weak the party establishments are. There really are no party establishments anymore. There's no one in charge. Paul Ryan is struggling to organize his caucus in the House, even to do, for example, health care, their number one promise. Donald Trump is historically unpopular. He has very little by way of a following in the party. It's making it very hard for him to govern. There's there's not much reservoir for him to draw on there. Um, Chaos continues. It's the real challenge, you know, isn't electing an insurgent. It's how do you govern? when they get in, and that's turning out to be really hard. Sure, yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you is whether you saw the the way the administration is operating uh, or interacting with Congress uh, or operating internally as sort of further illustration of your chaos uh, thesis. Sure. Uh, one of the problems they're having is because they campaigned against the party and because Trump himself is such a, let's use the word peculiar character, um, (laughs) as a shorthand for many other things we can say about him. (laughs) There are a lot of people who he will not allow to work for him in the party because they weren't loyal to him, and there are a lot of people who don't want to work for him because he's who he is, and that means he's operating with people who in many cases don't know what they're doing. Some of these people are in the White House, they're, you know, just like internet trolls. The Reagan administration was in some ways an insurgency, but Reagan, first thing he did is go out and get someone from the establishment, James Baker, Mm -hmm. to run the White House, a brilliant chief of staff and the guy who put the Reagan revolution together. And he went and got Dave Stockman, a member of Congress, and put him at OMP. Stockman really knew his way around Washington. He was able to tap the party to get the best and the brightest. That's much harder for Trump. Now, he's made some good appointments, but they're... You know, Mike Pence is really the closest thing we see in this administration to an experienced Washington insider, and Pence was in Congress for a while, and then a governor. He's a very able guy, but but he's not enough by himself. What about uh, Reince Priebus? He was a... Reince Priebus is the chief of staff, um, and he was a very able Republican Party chairman. He, he did something really important, which is he got Trump elected. That's why he's where he is. Trump was so much of an outsider and so disorganized that he didn't really have a ground game. So the Republican National Committee in the person of Priebus came along and said, okay, we have the mechanism and you have the candidate. We're going to put those together. We're just going to run your ground game. And Trump was smart enough to let them do that. Uh, Outsourcing Um, it effectively. Basically outsourced it to the political party. Political parties still really, really (laughs) matter. They are the essential glue that does the work of day-to-day organizing in politics. The Constitution only covers the basic setup, you know, three branches of government and what they're supposed to do. But how do they coordinate uh, between the branches of government? How do you get people in Congress to work together? 
how do you go find candidates who know what they're doing and can govern if elected and will play well with others? And how do you build coalitions? And then once you have coalitions, how do you develop compromises? That's what parties and political machines and bosses, political professionals, careerists, hacks, all these other things that we have for political professionals, that's what they do, and they are indispensable. Mm-hmm. Um, Priebus represented that face of the party. He, he wasn't strong enough to influence the nomination, but he was strong enough to provide a ground game for Trump. Yeah. So I, mean, I see especially the, the idea of uh, appointing political outsiders as illustrating your idea that uh, uh, the respect for professionals, for political professionals and insiders is is waning. Um, but I'm also, one of the things I was hoping to ask you about is, we've talked about the chaos um, within the administration or in the, the way the administration is dealing with Congress. But on, on the flip side of that, um, the, the GOP did win in November, and many people were predicting that the GOP would sort of explode, just completely crack up, uh, and Trump would lose the election. But that didn't happen. And not only did the Republicans win, they, they won historic majorities in many cases at all levels of government. Uh, do you see that sort of political fact at all uh, tempering the kind of chaos syndrome that you diagnose? No, not really. There are two different things. Um, there's lots of twists and turns in politics, and one party may do very well in one election and very poorly in another Let's remember, for example, that 10 years ago, the British Conservative Party was dead and the Labour Party was going to govern forever. Sure. Now, you know, the British Labour Party is dead and the Conservative Party is going to govern forever. What underlies all of that is the need for an establishment that can organize politics in the actual act of governing, which is what happens between elections. And the hard question for the Republicans now isn't, you know, they've got big majorities um, in governorships and state legislatures. They've got both chambers of Congress. They've got the presidency. They have no excuses not to govern, but that doesn't make it easy to govern. They've got some things they agree on um, that may move fairly quickly in principle, tax reform, perhaps, deregulation they all want to do, but that's low-hanging fruit. Then it gets much harder because they get all the stuff they don't agree on, you know, like trade and defense and spending and entitlement. Without an establishment that can pull those people and factions together and make deals and compromises, you will see chaos in government for four years. And then you will see very unhappy voters because they'll say, hey, wait, we thought we gave you this thing to fix and you didn't fix it. So that's the risk (laughs) that they run. Yeah. Are, are you at all optimistic about any of the possible sort of creative tensions that might come out of uh, the strange coalition that, that does have the majority right now, given Trump's sort of populist nationalism and the more run-of-the-mill conservatism uh, on display in, in the House, for example? Well, if you're asking about policy, we could get a mix of, of good and bad policy, as we usually do. If you're asking about political organization and some ability to begin restoring some of the fabric of um, political organization, harder to be optimistic on that. Trump to say, 
the least, is not an organization-minded politician. <laughs> um, that's the understatement of the year. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult for leaders in Congress to do that job now because they're more afraid of their followers than their followers are of them. So at the organizational level, we have more work to do. Now, the good news is that the steps that got us toward chaos syndrome, many of them are undoable. And there's a lot of interest now in beginning to rethink some of the mistakes we made over the last 40 years that they got us here. Mm-hmm. In many ways, Trump seems to embody perfectly the kind of uh, character you describe as being made possible by this chaotic system, an outsider who's accountable to no one, um, who is motivated by presumably self-interest, uh, on the other hand, he, he presented this image, and still does, of being you know, a deal-maker, a wheeler and dealer. Could you make the case that in some ways he reflects the kind of ethos of the transactional politician you hold up as a model? Well, or- we'll see. We don't, we don't know yet. There are multiple personalities living in that person, and they seem to change from minute to minute. And yeah, one is the art-of-the-deal guy who loves to negotiate and and says, at least, that he's really good at it, though other people dispute that. Mm-hmm. The other is the extremely stubborn hothead um, who is too egotistical to get anything done and keeps undercutting himself by, t- by tweeting out stuff. You know, he has a triumphant speech before Congress, finally shows himself to be presidential, and three days later blows it all to smithereens. So which mm-hmm. one do we get? We don't know. But here's the thing to remember, Tony. It's not just about the individual. The deals happen because of all those other people working in the background to put them together. You've got to have the smoke-filled room. You've got to have people saying, okay, what do you need? What do you need? That's got to involve the White House and both sides, uh, both chambers of Congress. When Washington functions better than it does today, it involves leadership in both parties. It's how we did stuff like tax reform and welfare reform when it works. Those are the institutions that we have systematically stripped of most of their gears in the last four years. So Trump doesn't have all that stuff to work with. And you can't do it by just walking into the room and saying, I'm Donald Trump, if there are no gears to mesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm especially interested in, in, in this idea that that candidates or politicians like Trump are uh, dangerous or worrisome precisely because they're not accountable to these uh, sorts of institutions and middlemen, as you call them. Um, it seems to me it's uh, to be kind of the flip side of, of, of demagogy, right? So you have sort of individualism that runs rampant in the political system because of the chaos created by hollowing out of these middle men and mi- middle institutions. Um, but that sort of individualism at the political level leads to a kind of uh, populism or is is fueled by a kind of populism at the level of the voter. Does that seem like a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah, you, you put it better than I do. Let me maybe take a minute to do a very brief walkthrough of, of how I think we got here. Sure, maybe yeah. Give, maybe give listeners a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about these middlemen and, and the decline of political organizations. Sure, yeah. So, 
very early in the history of the country, it turned out the Constitution wasn't enough, and you needed people to organize in politics. Because politics is a team sport. You've got to have lots of people playing lots of positions to coordinate all kinds of things, and it's very difficult in a country people don't agree on. So we developed parties and political machines and professionals and things like the seniority system on Capitol Hill, which rewarded loyalty to the leadership, and the committee system, which got lots of people involved in making sausage on Capitol Hill. It took decades to get these things going. They worked very well for a long time. Um, And then to to cut this story, story brutally short, in the 70s, people in my generation and the people just older than me said, well, we don't need all these middlemen, you know, and these smoke-filled rooms and this log-rolling and deal-making and these secret appropriations committee meetings. Let's, let's have sunshine. Let's have direct selection of candidates by voters. Why should parties do that? Let's do that democratically. Let's take away the ability of the bosses to collect large sums of money, you know, and then distribute it to candidates of their choice. Parties, why should they be in the middle? Um, they shouldn't have any special say, so we passed lots of rules making parties just like interest groups, only even weaker. We did this year after year consistently, a relentless attack on the middleman structures because we thought we didn't need them and finally reached a point in the last few years where they just were no longer capable of doing their job. They couldn't even select their own party's nominee. I mean, think about it. The guys that, that did the best were people like Cruz and Sanders and Trump and Ben Carson, people with, you know, running against their own parties. Uh, So this did not happen just by coincidence or just because of polarization or media fragmentation. It also happened because we made deliberate efforts to strip all these middlemen of the powers that they needed to do to get people to follow. So... Mm -hmm. I mentioned politics is a team sport. Well, it's a team sport, but now we play it like second grade soccer. <laughs> you know, where everyone mobs the field and just chases the ball. I remember that. Well, would not, I I don't exactly remember what question got me thinking I should I should run that bit of background, but did I address it? Sure, yeah, and and bringing things uh back back to the present, would it be fair to say then that you know, a lot of people have worried about uh, people who who are critical of Trump or who are worried about Trump uh, wonder whether our system is sufficient to kind of contain him. I know you've written about this. Um, whether uh, we have mechanisms in place that will sort of rein him in, uh, keep him from stepping too far outside the bounds of normal political uh, operating. Is it fair to say that that your thesis would be that? Uh, the constitutional mechanisms of our government uh, are not sufficient for that. In other words, while there was this idea uh, at the founding, you know, Madison, uh, often this view is often attributed to James Madison, that you know, self-interested actors are going to be part of the political system, so we should channel that self-interest in certain ways through a system of checks and balances. Um, but but your your thesis is that over and above that constitutional system and those mechanisms, there's this sort of unwritten constitution, sets of practices and institutions and middlemen and middle institutions um, that further uh, temper uh, and uh, organize politics in various ways. And that the hollowing out of those middle layers 
is precisely why Trump could be in a position to be uh, less contained than he might otherwise be. Is that is that right? Well, I, that's pretty close, but I'm going to put it a little differently because sure. I think the big worry is a little different. So let's let's say that there are three things that we need to be concerned about. One is a president like Nixon who comes to work every day and systematically breaks the law. Nixon was a sinister and dangerous criminal, and that's what he did. But we've put in a lot of systems since Nixon to make that harder. Um, I don't think Trump is that motivated to break the law, and I think if he does, he'll be contained. So that's worries least. Second thing to worry about are the norms of democracy. These are the things that are not written in laws, but these are the behaviors we expect of politicians and of each other so that we can be a governable society. These are things like uh, accept the legitimacy of your political opponent even if you don't agree with them. Don't lie all the time. Don't trash the courts um, or the other branches of government. Don't go to war with your own administration having tweet storms. Trump has already severely damaged many of those norms both in the campaigns and in the administration which is going to make it harder to govern, including for him. So I, I'm very worried about the effect of Trumpism on democratic norms and, and custom. The third level goes to your point about containing Trump, and that's the level of governing organization and mechanisms. And this goes to political chaos. Mm -hmm. And here the problem isn't that Trump is too strong, it's that he's too weak. It's that without these effective mechanisms that bind politicians to each other so that followers can follow leaders and leaders can set paths. You just get a big confusion of individuals, you know, running all over the soccer field chasing the ball. Um, and that means that it's actually extremely difficult for Trump to govern or for anyone to govern or for Congress to govern. The Democrats essentially go out on strike. They're just not going to help. Why should they? The Republicans are deeply divided, and they're much more worried about primary challenges at home than they are about following their leaders. Trump has very shallow support. He has legitimacy problems. His agenda is not all that popular to begin with, and he has no idea how the government works. Um, he has no roots in the party. And for all these reasons, you just, instead of seeing a presidency that's too strong, you see a presidency that's too weak, you see a government that starts to fail and fall apart, you see a public that's less happy than ever, and that could lead after Trump to even more sort of populist uprising and anti-democratic backlash. So mm -hmm. I'm worried about weakness more than I am strength. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, thinking a little more about the, the populist backlash that you mentioned, you emphasize the way that uh, well-intentioned reforms have brought us to this situation of, sort of practical ungovernability uh, and chaos. Uh, but isn't there also the sort of, well, the populist uh, backlash, a sort of uh, growing discontent among voters that the political class is not representing their interests? I mean, people who advance this sort of thesis might might point to uh, the, the democratization of of information and uh, media. The more they learn, that is, the more voters learn about the political class, the less happy they are with what they see. And so that, given this kind of view, somebody like Trump would be perhaps not accountable to the middlemen or to the professional uh, politicians, but they would 
in theory, be accountable to the voter. And so uh, maybe it will be a, a rocky start, but uh, an outside politician like Trump might be just what the doctor ordered in terms of channeling what the voters want. What would you well, say to that kind of view? From your mouth to God's ear is what I would say to that. <laughs> I'm very bad at predicting the future, especially the last year or so. I think we know that it's hard to govern without mechanisms of governance. Sure. And that having an effective political class is important. And I think we know that the public was a whole lot happier 30 and 40 years ago when you had strong institutions that were doing their job and channeling lots of voter sentiment into actual compromises and policy and moving those through the process on Capitol Hill and coordinating within the parties and among the branches. People like that. They like to see government work. We're in a cycle in which um, we've disempowered the political class, so there really are no party leaders anymore, effectively. There's very little organization that, that can go on. The results of that are bad. Candidates say, well, elect me and we'll sweep away the bastards who are causing this mess. Um, but these are inexperienced people. Um, meanwhile, we further weaken the mechanisms of, um, of middle, of intermediation. Mm-hmm. Um, we further weaken these systems, that leads to more backlash and the whole cycle starts all over again. Mm-hmm. You know, rinse, wash, rinse, repeat. <laughs> so that's where we are right now. We can turn around. Um, as I said earlier, there's lots of stuff we can do that will help. There's no magic bullets, but there are lots of ways to strengthen parties relative to other players. They're among the weakest players in our political system right now, by choice. There are lots of laws and things we can change. Um, there are people on Capitol Hill who want to restore some ability to use pork barrel spending and earmarks to get stuff done. That would be marginally helpful. Um, it's time to reconsider the idea that voters, basically random voters, should choose party nominees. We need to restore more power to party officials to decide who gets to run. Now, they'll have to share power, obviously, with the public. I'm not suggesting you just have a sort of strongman government. But you need professionals to be able to re- reward loyalists who are team players and know how to govern. That's essential. All of these things and many more, which I can list, are very doable. We just have to decide to do them and to stop trashing and demolishing our intermediaries in politics, understand they're important, and start working to help them do their job better instead of just blowing things up. Yeah. To my sort of strict constitutional conservative friends, I often say the, the vision of a Jeffersonian citizen statesmen living on farms and so on may sound nice but there's no way we could get back to that if it ever it ever existed uh we never had that people are too cynical perhaps about uh that that kind of government but but to you i'd ask sort of the inverse question it seems like what you're suggesting as a way to address these problems is a pretty big ask in the political climate we have where distrust is so deep and rampant uh, distrust and cynicism about our institutions. Do you, are you at all optimistic about getting those uh, reforms heard? Uh, and do you think one party may be more likely to be the vehicle of those ideas? In the short run, I'm not very optimistic. In the long run, I'm actually quite optimistic. Americans are really good, actually, at building political structures and informal organizations. Ever since... Um, the very first years of our republic and, and Tocqueville, 
I don't think we've lost those skills. My article on why American politics went insane cut completely against the grain of most discourse and said we need stronger intermediaries mm-hmm. and stronger political careers, not weaker. And it got, it had an astonishing impact, far more than anything I've written. And, you know, we're talking 8,000 words of very dense argumentation. Mm-hmm. People are hungry for answers, and a lot of people said, you know, this actually makes sense. Um, so when a lot of people are looking at a system without effective political organization, with growing chaos, with really no leaders to speak of, no leaders that have the tools they need to lead, and they don't like what they're seeing. So I would argue that even compared to a year ago or two years ago, there's a lot more receptivity to the idea of rebuilding political institutions and strengthening political leadership as something that's got to be done. And I expect that to continue because I expect that as we see continued chaos, if that's the route we're on, we're also going to see growing interest in ways to fix that. Well, I certainly hope you're right. Well. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to, to come on and, and talk with me today. And uh, it's uh, a very provocative thesis, and I and I think that the diagnosis really cuts to the heart of the the problem that our that we have in our current political situation. And I hope some of your reforms uh, find their way to the the appropriate ears. Well, thank you. I point your listeners, if they're interested, to two things that they could read both of which are free and worth every penny. One is my Atlantic article from last year, How American Politics Went Insane, which we've been talking about. Another, which is a little bit longer, though not very much, is a free mini ebook, which you can get on Amazon or the Brookings website or lots of other places. It's called Political Realism, How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Politics. It was actually published just before Trump announced his candidacy a couple of years ago. Um, but it's still, I think, the, the best place where I tried to sit down and put in one place all these ideas about um, political realism and the need for middlemen and organization in politics. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned political realism, and just sort of as a concluding uh, thought or question, uh, because my background is in philosophy, uh, to thinking more in terms of political philosophy, you describe this view, um, which rejects utopianism, and uh, if I can put it this way, is uh, aims for more prudential reforms within the bounds of our political traditions and trappings. Uh, you call this realism, but some might simply call this conservatism. Do you see a meaningful distinction there, or... Uh, what's distinctive about realism as you understand it? I use the term drawing inspiration from foreign policy to say not it's not just that we're talking about incrementalism and understanding the limits of change, so that's very important. It's also understanding what foreign policy realists understand, which is that you've got to deal with the world the way it is. And in order to function in that world, sometimes you have to do things that you'd rather not do. It may not be perfect. <laughs> Yeah. We've spent too many years trying to perfect the political system and make it conform to reformers' ideas of how clean it should be and how money should flow and how candidates should be chosen and how people, how members of Congress should vote. These idealistic notions turn out to have very little to do with reality. You need to have the money flows. You need to have self-interested voting. 
you need to have smoke-filled rooms. And realists in politics, like realists in foreign policy, say, okay, we're living in this second-best world, so let's make it function. Let's not just trash it and hope for something better. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.